When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Many great and wonderful deeds are recorded of your state in our histories, but one of them exceeds all the rest in greatness and valor. For these histories tell of a mighty power which unprovoked made of a mighty power which unprovoked made an expedition against the whole of Europe and Asia, and to which your city put an end. 
This power came forth out of the Atlantic Ocean, for in those days the Atlantic was navigable, and there was an island situated in front of the straits which are by you called the Pillars of Heracles. The island was larger than Libya and Asia put together, and was the way to other islands. From these you might pass to the whole of the opposite continent, which surrounded the true ocean. For this sea, which is within the Straits of Heracles, is only a harbour, having a narrow entrance, but that other is a real sea, and the surrounding land may be most truly called a boundless continent." Oh, hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv. Once more here to remind you that, at least for this series of episodes, the show is much better called Let's Talk About Allegory, baby. (laughs) Not a good song. Play-Doh, Play-Doh, Play-Doh. What have you done? (laughs) I'll never get over the fact that all of the invented fantastical nonsense we know about Atlantis ultimately comes from this odd little pair of dialogues by Plato. Have you noticed yet how minimally advanced they are technologically? They're no more advanced than the classical world of Plato. They've got nothing to suggest they were in any way, say, the way they're depicted in the Disney movie, which, yes, is basically my only pop culture reference for Atlantis other than Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Which, I mean, there's too much Assassin's Creed issue stuff going on in there for me to really try to navigate it. Except for a bonus episode on Saturday. Yes, I'm speaking with the wonderful Dr. Kira Jones again. All about the Atlantis DLC. You'll remember Kira from another Odyssey episode we did a while back. But today is not about AC Odyssey nor Disney. Today we're continuing on a bit from last week's episode, moving on to the history of it all before taking a left turn and examining just why some of the modern notions of Atlantis are dangerous. As I've said before, I'm not going into modern theories, I don't think they deserve airtime and they're all based in misreading Plato in one way or another. You simply can't develop a reasoned argument for Atlantis existing if you read Plato honestly as I hope I've made pretty clear over the last few episodes, while simultaneously not being too repetitive, have I been too repetitive? (laughs) I also want to say that, once more, there isn't anything wrong with being interested in Atlantis. I just want you all to know the background, the ancient sources as they exist, and I want you to understand the ways in which an interest in Atlantis can end up transformed into a dark and dangerous conspiracy that typically has roots in even darker and more dangerous racism. That is today's episode, and on Friday I'll be speaking with Steph Halmhofer, an archaeologist who studies the conspiracy of it all, and the conspirituality. Yes, conspirituality! More on that later. Still, looking for Atlantis is another thing entirely. Last week, we talked about Atlantis through the mouth of Plato, what he was trying to do, and how he went about accomplishing it. We talked about allegory and how Plato uses allegory to make his points, how he intentionally made Atlantis unbelievable so that his audience might suspend their disbelief, be able to separate themselves from the modern implications of Plato's theory, and think of it 
as though it was taking place in another world. We talked about why exactly Atlantis is not a myth, why and how it doesn't fit the definition, not nor the general understanding of the word, why it's very different from a place like Troy. By now you might be wondering where the rest of our notions of Atlantis really come from, if they don't come from Plato or Greek mythology. We often think of Atlantis as being highly technologically advanced people, or being wise and spiritual. You might even have an idea that the reason they were punished by the gods was actually because of these things, because they flew too close to the sun, to use a very apt mythological phrase borrowed from our friend Icarus. There are so many common and accepted notions of Atlantis that I haven't mentioned in the series that weren't included when I broke down Plato's story because they're not in Plato's story. So where did they come from? We'll get there. But first, how and why we know that, as much as it would be fascinating and very, very cool if there were indeed a lost city of Atlantis just waiting to be found, every bit of physical, historical, and archaeological evidence we have tells us differently. What those things can tell us about the ancient Mediterranean and Plato's Atlantis. This is episode 152, Deconstructing Atlantis, Platonic Allegory Meets Bronze Age Reality Meets Dangerous Conspiracy. At the very end of last week's episode, I offered an idea of what many of you might be thinking, that surely, allegory and non-myth status aside, it isn't impossible that Plato was talking about a real place. Surely it could be just one big coincidence that he is the only source to mention it independently, that no one before him had any notion of the lost island, and that every mention after him was in relation to his own invention. That surely it's not impossible, even based on that evidence. Honestly, it might also be that this hasn't crossed any of your minds. I don't have a good grasp on how regular old humans, non-conspiracy theorists, I mean, imagine Atlantis. Myth? Fiction? I used to always just assume it was myth. I don't know if I ever thought it was history. I think we all understand it incorrectly, but just how incorrectly is another question. Still, we're going to visit this idea because it's interesting and it gives me a reason to talk about the ancient Mediterranean region and the archaeological and historical evidence that we do have. I've already mentioned one of the pieces of evidence, or I suppose lack thereof, that I consider to be one of the most convincing, but let's dive into what it actually means that Plato in the 4th century BCE is the one and only source to mention, really mention, Atlantis. But first, every time I say something like this, I can hear the believers screaming a few names at me. And frankly, I thought I'd explained this in last week's episode, but my scripts for these have become so unwieldy that it got moved to today's. Plato is absolutely the first reference to Atlantis, but there are a handful of others that come after him. Plutarch is one, and a couple of other philosophers. Still, all of these references to Atlantis are explicitly connected with Plato's story. 
Plutarch entertains the idea in his life of Solon, but he's writing many more hundreds of years after Plato, who was a couple hundred years after Solon, so Plutarch is simply picking up on Plato's usage of him as a character. Similar with those philosophers who mention it, though they are either students of Plato, admirers of his work, or people disputing him, in all cases, references to Atlantis are just speaking of Plato's story. Aristotle himself was a student of Plato, and he seems not to have believed the story of Atlantis, or to have known it was obviously meant to be false, as he had many chances to speak of it as anything other than a thought experiment, and he did not. But, to put it simply, there are no other independent sources for Atlantis. That is, no other sources that aren't building off of Plato's pre-existing invention. To put it simply, if I were to write that the sky is green, and many hundreds of years down the line someone writes that Liv wrote that the sky was green, and she was a smart lady, so who knows? That does not mean the sky was ever green. When it comes to the archaeological evidence against Atlantis, let's get the most obvious out of the way. As I've already mentioned, the date of 9,000 years before Plato, or Solon, doesn't even matter. Either way, that date is easily disprovable because, well, if we want to disprove Atlantis, we simply have to look to Athens, where there was nothing remotely resembling a city capable of waging war and winning against an island like Atlantis. Anyone who's trying to find Atlantis or convince others that it might have been historical when it comes to Plato's Timaeus and Critias, but that ignores the lack of city of in Athens from that time period is immediately unreliable. They're doing exactly the definition of pseudo-archaeology. They're ignoring the methodology, the existing facts, in order to prove their pre-existing idea. Still, let's dive deeper. Let's say we want to believe that Plato based his story in history, but invented this contemporary ancient Athens. It's a stretch, sure, but all of this is a stretch, so we're playing with it. Atlantis, we're told, was an island bigger than Asia and Libya, that is, northern Africa, put together, but it sank, into the Atlantic, just beyond the Pillars of Heracles. It seems easy to be like, hey, we know what's at the bottom of the Atlantic, just beyond the Pillars of Heracles, the Strait of Gibraltar, and there's nothing. So dust your hands in that satisfying kind of way and head home. But... No. Despite the fact it's very clear where Atlantis was meant to be, the search for it has gone far, far beyond Plato and into an entirely invented realm where people suggest it's all over the damn place. It's up north with the Scandinavians, it's off in the Indian Ocean, it's somewhere in the Pacific, it's the whole of the Americas. All of that is straight up ignoring the singular classical source whose story had a really simple grasp on the Mediterranean geography and absolutely intended the island to be just on the other side of that strait, close enough that it could rule over Europe and Africa. That's part of the story, too. Frankly, I'll never fathom how anyone who considers themselves an archaeologist gets convinced, but hey, it's happened. And while that's about as far as I'm willing to entertain the idea of Atlantis being somewhere beyond the clear facts shared by Plato, because those theories are all disingenuous nonsense, they've got their roots in the Atlantis of a much, much later time. A much more dangerous notion of Atlantis, which we'll get to. But there's one theory of Atlantis that has a lot more merit, 
and has gained a lot of cultural importance in Greece itself. It stands on its own as a theory, beyond these nonsensical ideas of where Atlantis could be, or the idea that Plato was suddenly a historian. That is the only theory I'm interested in talking about, because it is in itself a fascinating piece of history. This theory of Atlantis isn't necessarily that the island in question was Atlantis. It doesn't visibly resemble Plato's description, it is very, very small comparatively, and, well, Plato's allegory was explicitly fictional. Still, that doesn't mean he didn't have some inspiration, that there wasn't a real event that gave him an idea for his then-fictional philosophical world. Of course, that island is now what we call Santorini, but it used to be a very, very different place. Now, like I said, the Greek people, and particularly modern Santorini, have developed their own story of Atlantis that includes Santorini. Modern Greece has taken hold of that idea, and I am not here to tell the Greek people how to use their own history, their own cultural stories, be they philosophical allegories or otherwise. So, first and foremost, zero judgment to the Greek people or the island of Santorini for using the story in Atlantis in whatever way that they want to. You do you. Thanks for all that you do. Just be in Greek. Echaristopoli. Now, time to talk about why Santorini still isn't anything that can be reasonably called Atlantis. But oh, is it something else entirely? The ancient island of Thera, now what we call Santorini, was a volcanic island north of Crete, in the middle of the Mediterranean. It was an island that was a mountain, in which was hidden a volcano. There, in the Bronze Age, was a city that was connected with the Minoan people of Crete. We call it Akrotiri, and Akrotiri was incredible. They had stunning, colorful, and detailed wall paintings of flowers, of people boxing, of women gathering saffron flowers. The paintings very much resemble those on the island of Crete, hence the connection between the two islands. (sighs) Now, remember, this was the Bronze Age. The city was occupied earlier than the 17th or 16th centuries BCE. Now, of course, that isn't remotely near the realm of Atlantis at the 10th or 11th millennia BCE, but it is well over a thousand years older than Plato. So what happened in the 16th or 17th centuries BCE? Why is it possibly the inspiration for the fictional island of Atlantis? And for that matter, why was this ancient island of Thera so very different from the modern island of Santorini? Well, Thera was a volcano, and volcanoes erupt. And Thera's was a really, really, really strong eruption. I wish I knew more about volcanoes so that I could properly explain to you how big it was, but I'll try. 
The volcanic eruption of Thera was one of the biggest volcanic eruptions we have records for. It was a six or a seven in the order of magnitude that they used to track eruptions. Almost all of the volcanoes that hit an eight happened before humanity even existed. That's how big an eight is. So you can get an idea of what a seven might look like. The eruption of Thera changed the face of the Mediterranean during the Bronze Age. It brought about a volcanic winter, it sent tsunamis, it tore through the Mediterranean and disrupted the peoples living there to such a degree that it is often credited for what is termed the Bronze Age Collapse. That in itself is a problematic term as there wasn't any kind of like official or true collapse, but a slow erosion and breakdown of Bronze Age societies that was in large part affected by this volcano. Imagine you're a person living in the 1600s BCE. You're pretty reliant on agriculture and trade. So when a volcanic eruption happens so close and is so big that it basically ruins an entire year of your lives. It, it caused a refugee crisis. It just did so many things. An enormous amount of damage, the effects of which would have been felt for centuries. The eruption of Thera was so big that the majority of the island, which was itself the volcano, sunk into the sea. It left a caldera, which is today still beneath the sea in Santorini, an island that is now a circular shape. Because the whole center of it sunk into the sea. But how do we know about Akrotiri, the city on Thera, where the stunning wall paintings were? It was preserved by the volcanic ash and whatever else. I'm not a volcanologist. Just like Pompeii, only older. So much older. Like, over 1,600 years older than Pompeii. Ugh. If you take one thing from this episode, other than the fact that Atlantis wasn't a myth or reality, take with you the knowledge that there exists a preserved ancient city that is over 1600 years older than Pompeii. That its wall paintings were preserved and can still be seen on both Santorini and in Athens. Google Akrotiri. You'll thank me. It's absolutely the best thing I learned in university. So what better inspiration for Plato's fictional city of Atlantis than this volcanic eruption, over a thousand years before his time, the remains of which he could see with his own eyes? It's pretty easy to believe the argument that the island of Thera, Santorini, while not Atlantis, could have been the inspiration for Atlantis. But it was and is so much better than Atlantis. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. 
the joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The example of Thera, Santorini, and why it might be a beautiful story of Plato's inspiration, but certainly can't be reasonably called Atlantis from the story itself at least, connects very nicely to the why of it all. Why have I made this series of episodes all about disproving Atlantis, blowing up your childhood dreams, talking about how it simply isn't a thing, be that thing myth or history or anything else? Because... Like you've likely heard in my conversation episodes by now, when we attribute something to Atlantis, at least the Atlantis it's become, instead of attributing it to the ancient people who actually did exist and did do some pretty incredible things, we take the credit away from those actual ancient people. Thera Santorini 
wasn't Atlantis because that suggests that they were this godly people separate from the Minoan Greeks who actually lived on Thera and built Akrotiri and painted those incredible wall paintings and did everything else wonderful that they did in a historical reality. Now, obviously, Santorini is one of the least problematic, least dangerous examples, namely because modern Greece uses Atlantis as a way to bring people to Santorini to teach them about Akrotiri, which is great. But it is a good example as a starting point. First, though, let's look at what Atlantis has become, because that is a vital piece of this. Now, some of what you'll hear will sound familiar from my conversation with David S. Anderson, but I've expanded on it here. This new version of Atlantis began to develop, at least in any kind of mainstream way, in the 16th century. That is the 16th century CE. You know, only about 2,000 years after Plato lived. This is when Atlantis started being seen as a utopia. Now, as I've said, these episodes aren't about this new version of Atlantis because it's so far from the ancient idea and the ancient sources that I find it just to be too inherently wrong. I mean, I guess these early inklings have value when you're looking at the historical time period that they developed in and the literature that they came from, things like Thomas More's Utopia and Francis Bacon's The New Atlantis. But this isn't a literature podcast, nor is it about this time in history, which is All of way of me saying I haven't read these sources and I'm only giving a broad overview to get to my point. The idea of Atlantis as a utopia first appears in these works. Utopia by Thomas More and The New Atlantis by Francis Bacon. Do I know how they got to Atlantis being a utopia or whether there was some kind of semi-reasonable argument to get there? No, because it's not the point. The point is, this is where it starts. Of course, as I've already said, this is not remotely what Plato intended. The Atlantis of Plato is very much not a utopia, and in fact, intentionally serves as the example of the opposite of the more utopian Athens. And yet suddenly here in the 16th century CE, Atlantis becomes a utopia. And the idea catches on. It's baffling. Plato makes it very clear. Atlantis are the bad guys. Sure, they begin virtuous, but even when they're being virtuous, we hear that they can punish and kill whoever they want for whatever reason they deem fit. Beyond that, they're the ones who descend into tyranny. They're the ones who lose the war with Athens. They're the ones who are punished by the gods. Meanwhile, Athens sounds quite nice if you ignore Plato's interest in eugenics. Whatever the reason and whether it makes sense or not, this is when Atlantis begins to be seen as a utopia. Oh, and does it go downhill from there. Then you shift to the people who are in the midst of violently colonizing the Americas, who start thinking that it's simply impossible for these indigenous peoples to have created such incredible architectural works, pyramids and temples and all the amazing things the colonizers found in the Americas. So those colonizers think, hey, you know what? In fact, all of these incredible feats we've found in the Americas are just proof of Atlantis. Because, no, no, these non-white indigenous peoples couldn't be capable of such ingenuity. It must mean that the Atlanteans did it. Yeah, they must have escaped the island before it sunk into the sea, made their way to the Americas, and built all this amazing stuff. Yep, that must be it. And so, as you can see, this is where the racism starts, and it doesn't stop. Now... 
All of this next bit will be super simplified because I'm not diving too deep into this. I don't want to read any of these next people's works or learn their racist shit. I'm going off of Wikipedia, which I would otherwise never do. But these are racist ideologies, so I'm not going any deeper than our good friend, Wikipedia. Because we next have Ignatius Donnelly, the American congressman who developed an extensive and beyond absurd book of Atlantis theorizing. It does a lot of things to the story of Atlantis, but the important bit is that it introduces a bit of spiritualism to the story. Needless to say, an American congressman of the 19th century contributed a bunch of Christian ideals to the story. He wrote about Atlantis being the common history between the Americas and Africa. He connects the flood of Atlantis to the biblical flood. And he says that Atlantis was the origin of the Aryan race. Mm-hmm. Yep, you can see where we're going here. From there, Helena Blavatsky. We'll talk more about Helena Blavatsky in my upcoming conversation episode with Steph Holmhofer, but the Cliff's notes is that she introduced a whole other level of invented spiritualism to Atlantis, and a whole lot more race stuff that, gods, I will not try to understand. But, you know, it was the 19th century and she was white, so it's not good. Obviously, all of this is so not good that you know who else looked for Atlantis with real seriousness and a really racist theory? The fucking Nazis. In Germany, around the same time, there develops a theory that the Atlanteans are in fact Hyperboreans. Now, Hyperborea is originally from Greek myth, if not many myths, and is basically how they understood Northern Europe. There's very little. Maybe I'll cover it one day. Myths aside, the idea, along with Atlantis, was picked up by Blavatsky. The key only is that this theory later allows the Nazis to believe that the Atlanteans were white. Like blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white. You can imagine Donnelly's theory of the origin of the Aryan race didn't help. And so off the Nazis go trying to find Atlantis to find their so-called proof of an ancient white race, an ancient Aryan race, from which they can say they are descended, and thus justify all of the horror they are about to commit. It's bad. I'm obviously, truly, really not here to talk about the Nazis, thank the gods, but it's important to lay out the ways in which Atlantis has been used for horrific racist propaganda. It doesn't need to be said, but all of this is complete and utter bullshit for a whole host of obvious reasons, but the main one being, if Atlantis were where Plato said it was, beyond the Strait of Gibraltar, they wouldn't have been particularly light-skinned, let alone how we understand white as the Nazis and other racists want to think. But this is how Atlantis came to be such a dangerous topic. It's why I'm coming at it like I am. It's why I've had these incredible archaeologists who want to talk to me about it. It's why it's a big deal that we don't give any credence or viewership to these nonsense so-called documentaries that go searching for Atlantis because it's good for ratings. Ignoring the fact that it is inherently not a place, not a history, not a myth and that it actually has a whole slew of racist undertones that aren't Plato's fault, but they exist all the same. 
Atlantis has been used as a way to get around the out of Africa theory that if the whitest of the white people actually came from this idea of a white Atlantis, then these racist shits don't have to believe that they, along with all the rest of us, are descended from people who originally came from Africa. It's dark as all fuck, obviously. You know, I actually avoided swearing on the other two Atlantis episodes, so I didn't have to make them explicit and thus make them more able to be shared. But man, when you get into this racist stuff, I just can't help myself. It's super fucking dark, you guys. Like, holy shit, it's dark. Now, obviously, all of this is based in these modern ideas of so, so many things, whiteness being key. Plato had no concept of whiteness as we know it now. He was thinking of Atlantis as simply a culture of barbarians because they weren't Greek. And remember, if you aren't Greek, you're a barbarian. That's just the way it is. That's why they're the bad guys. So who knows what Plato's fictional Atlantis imagined the people to look like if he did at all, at least when it comes to race. But for all his eugenics shit, his intention was still not to create this utopian society of light-skinned people. Because again, there was no concept of this. They were barbarians, and the, most importantly, the thing I will never get over, they were the bad guys. Like, these racist people taking it on, they're just giving themselves away. Atlantis was explicitly an example of what is not a utopia. What is deserving of punishment from the gods. There are so many fascinating places from the world of Greek myth. The emphasis placed on Atlantis in pop culture and beyond is just so unnecessary. I hope all of this inspires you listeners to take up passions with places and people that are actually from Greek myth or history, come up with a mystical world based on locations from Homer's Odyssey or the ancient Ethiopia of myth, the historical city of Carthage, places from the Greek mainland or Greek islands or hell, lots of mythology beyond the Greeks. I just really only know the Greeks well. We should raise up the story of Akrotiri, a very real ancient city you can visit that gives some of the best examples of life in the Bronze Age Mediterranean and all that it had to offer, the kind of art and architecture that existed, daily life in the world of almost 4,000 years in the past. Spread the word about Atlantis, too. One of my favorite things now is to share the true nature of it when it comes up. Not only that it was simply a thought experiment by a Greek philosopher, but that so much of what we do imagine to be the mythological Atlantis is, in fact, only from the past few hundred years, and often comes with racial undertones that most of us have no idea about. We like the idea of Atlantis because it really is fascinating to think about, like a lost city that could be found, a people shrouded in mystery. But those same things can actually be real, too. There are most certainly cities from the ancient world that have been lost to the sea. There are mysterious people that we don't know enough about. There is an equally fascinating world of technologically advanced ancient people, they're just people like the ancient Egyptians, the Mayans, the Aztecs, people that did things that we can only imagine and did them so many thousands of years ago. They're just as interesting as Atlantis, but because whiteness has been ascribed to Atlantis, 
very recently in the grand scheme of human existence. Because of that, it's given more power and importance than these very real ancient people. And that is just, it's heartbreaking. Even very recently, there are so-called documentaries about finding evidence of Atlantis, real archaeology that gets misinterpreted in the name of ratings, when there could be documentaries about very real ancient people and the archaeologists studying them. Not to say there aren't, but they are not produced in the same way, and it's obvious. And they could be produced in the same way, if the people in charge just made a real effort to make actual, truthful history and archaeology seem just as exciting as Atlantis pseudo-archaeology. Which it is, it's just about how you market it. It's, it's possible. It just takes people with the loudest voices in the room actually growing a conscience and realizing the harm in advancing ahistorical theories, let alone ahistorical theories with ties to extreme racism. It sounds super cheesy, but honestly, if you take anything away from this series of episodes other than Akrotiri, I hope it's the understanding of why aspects of the modern Atlantis story can be harmful if used in the wrong way. I hope you get how pseudo-archaeology harms very real and important archaeology, how it harms our understanding of very real ancient people, typically the ones who weren't what we now see as white, how much of the understanding of Atlantis that we have today is based in deep, dark, racist, colonial roots. Again, there isn't anything wrong with being interested in Atlantis as Plato wrote about it. There isn't necessarily anything wrong with fictionalizing Atlantis, so long as you understand the implications inherent in it, and you are aware of the background and its widespread use today for racist and generally white supremacist ideologies. Still, in my opinion, there are better things you can fictionalize. There are real ancient people who did really incredible things, certainly on par with the original platonic story of Atlantis, because truly there wasn't much in there. So why not invent your own world that's what you're looking for, or find real ancient people who did incredible things, who built pyramids that boggle the mind. These people were much, much more exciting than anything from the nonsensical realm of Atlantis. Real history, real archaeology, real ancient peoples and their mythologies are always going to be more interesting than the fake stuff. We just have to figure out how to get that through the capitalism of it all. Of course, much of what I'm referring to now is a not-so-subtle jab at a certain long-running TV show that suggests ancient people couldn't do what they did, that it must be aliens, and recent documentaries that incorrectly portray real, actual archaeologists as having any interest in finding Atlantis. It's all bullshit. It's dangerous lies used to make money, because no one's ever tried hard enough to get the same ratings and ad dollars from real, actual, ancient people in their worlds. If Atlantis is anything, it's a learning experience. Learn the truth, the history behind the real story, where the modern story comes from and what implications that has, and then decide how you want to use the truth. Honestly, even just having the knowledge is a really good start. Oh, nerds, thank you all so much for listening. This series of episodes has been so many things for me. 
It felt very odd to spend so much time disproving something that many of you probably don't believe in. I mean, I, I certain many, if not most of you, at least believed Atlantis to be a Greek myth, just like I did. But I don't know the number of people that believe it could be real. Maybe it's higher than I think. I honestly have no idea. Either way, I came to the series having experienced just a hint of the world of those who believe in Atlantis. For real, those who believe in it and their life seems to depend on that. The people I've encountered personally are some of the worst of the internet. Similar to the guys who want to tell me about Medusa. They just scream at you about how wrong and ignorant you are because of all their nonsense theories about Atlantis. They have explanations for everything, but none of it actually checks out if you just, I don't know, use some critical thinking skills. It helps to have knowledge in the real ancient world. Anyway, those experiences and the things I've seen over the past year made me want to actually dive into this, to tell you all the real Plato truth of it all, and explain why the truth matters, and why the background to the modern notion of Atlantis matters even more. If you don't know the racist, white supremacist background, how can you know how to take in Atlantis content? How to understand what content is and is not straight-up dangerous ideology? It's so easy to fall into a YouTube trap, thinking you're getting truthful, accurate information, and suddenly you don't even realize and it's turned into deep, horrible, racist propaganda. I hope I've done this series justice. And of course, it's not over yet. On Friday, I have an episode with Steph Homhofer, who tells us even more about the dark history, the people who started it, and the other things those people did. We talked archaeological conspiracies more generally and the racist ideologies behind some of them. It's totally fascinating, and Steph and I really had a lot of fun chatting about this. It helps that she's also from my province, which is a rare thrill for me. So stay tuned for that. It's seriously fun. Also on Saturday, I spoke with Kira Jones again, all about the Atlantis of Assassin's Creed Odyssey. You all know how much I love Odyssey, so that too was supremely fun. Stay tuned for it all. And now... Every time you hear about the modern ideas behind Atlantis, the crystal energies and the utopian societies, I hope you all imagine the illustration from my logo for this series. Face palm Play-Doh. That's certainly how Play-Doh would look if he knew what had spawned from his random allegorical fiction used to describe actually a fairly dystopian society. He'd smack himself in the forehead and start screaming about Athens. Why would you think Atlantis was better? Were you not paying attention? He would surely yell. I told you all about how perfect Athens is. Don't you know that Athens is perfect? <sighs> ah, Plato, what a mess you've made. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Liv, and I love real mythology and real history. That doesn't take away from the incredible skills and accomplishments of real ancient people. I love Akrotiri. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. 
This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.